This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. And today, we are going to look at an interesting book that uh, I was finally able to get a, a, a decent-priced copy of the original, not uh, some um, print-on-demand copy. Um, this is a book called Flying Saucer Pilgrimage by Bryant and Helen Reeve. And it was published by Amherst Press, which was, of course, um, uh, Ray Palmer's um, outfit, his, his publishing company. And it was published in... Uh, 1957. So this is a an older book, and Flying Saucer Pilgrimage. With a pilgrimage, you expect to go to some sort of holy place, right? That's what the word. Um, I was going to say that's the connotation of the word, but that that's not the connotation. That's that's the actual literal definition. So a denotation rather than a connotation. Um, in the case of Bryant and Helen Reeve. This pilgrimage was a road trip of tens of thousands of miles that took them to meet most of the major contactees of the mid-1950s and a, um, a stay in Mexico where they met um, a contactee who they refer to as the Mexican Adamski, which is, um, I don't know, I, 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 I will get to his story, and you can determine for yourself whether or not he's the Mexican Adamski or um, if Adamski is the uh, the American, this guy. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And one of the things that struck me when I started reading this, because I'd never read it, I'd heard of it, um, I knew these people did a road trip meeting all the contactees, and that they were pretty friendly to the contactee scene. What I didn't realize is that at the time they started getting into UFOs and the contactees, Helen and Bryant Reeve were part of that circle of people in Detroit, the uh, Detroit Flying Saucer Club crowd, including uh, Laura Mundo and Henry Madde and other people that we've that we've seen over the years here at the Saucer Life. So let's uh, we're going to start off and we're going to look at this book and look at the circumstances surrounding it and a, a little bit of biographical stuff about the people involved. <laughs> So a little bit about Bryant Reeve and his wife, Helen Reeve, were the authors of this book. Bryant Reeve was born Austin Bryant Reeve. He was Austin Bryant Reeve Jr. His father also had the same name. And so he went by Bryant Reeve, at least in, um, in, in print and things like that. He was born in 1891 in Princeton, Illinois. And um, he was from um, a family that was pretty prominent. Um, just doing some newspaper searches. Um, it's a family that showed up a lot in the society pages. So-and-so is going here to visit here. Um, his father, Austin B. Reeve Sr. died overseas, I think somewhere in Belgium. The family was there 
on uh, on business. Um, Bryant Reeve, we'll just call him Bryant Reeve to distinguish him from his father, um, graduated from Yale University in 1910. And then at a later point that I wasn't able to find the year of, graduated from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He was an engineer and he worked for the American Motors Corporation in Detroit um, back in the days before they were making cars like the Pacer and the Gremlin. And he retired from American Motors in 1954, which is pretty much where Flying Saucer Pilgrimage picks up. Now, about his wife, um, I believe his second wife, if I'm reading the um, various newspapers correctly, um, he married uh, Helen May Tallman. In 1950, in Detroit, she had been married previously. Uh, she had a uh, she had a son, um, at least one son, William uh, William Cunningham. And um, there's less there's less um, material out there about Helen. Now, one really interesting source for information a little bit about their lives was in an episode of the podcast Tectopia. Uh, earlier, I think earlier this year, and this interview was between the uh, the host uh, Chitra Raghavan and a fellow named Brian Cunningham, and Brian Cunningham is the grandson of Helen Reeve, who was the co-author with her husband Bryant on this. So um, he is uh, he's in the sort of cybersecurity. Um, he was the director of the UCI Cybersecurity Policy and Research Institute at some point, and um, he's on the show sort of talking about his grandparents' book and also his perspective as somebody in cybersecurity and who I think did some government work at times about the current UFO, um, the UFO stuff. Now, um, Bryant Reeve was not his, uh, his blood relation grandfather. Um, he's descended from the child that uh, Helen had with her first husband or her previous husband. Um, he doesn't remember much about Bryant. Uh, Bryant died in 1968, and Brian was five or six years old when that happened. So he doesn't remember a lot about it, um, about him. He remembers his grandmother better, and um, he said that, uh, quote, Helen Reeve, at the end of her life, when I knew her best, was pretty beaten down by life. She'd been a single mom during the Depression and had had a lot of hardship in her life, notwithstanding the fact that she got this great adventure in the 50s. I remember her as not all that pleasant to be around, end quote. So that's a little bit about uh, about the people. So looking at the book, um, it's it's a long book. It's, uh, it's 250-some pages or so, and uh, it, it took me a while to get through it. It's well-written. It is... Um, densely packed with information, and it pretty much breaks down into sort of two, well, three kind of sections. First, you've got the beginnings in Detroit and their activities there a little bit, and then you've got the road trip, including the stay in Mexico, and then the third part is um, actually the my, my least favorite part of the book because it's, it's sort of Bryant and Helen um, expounding on their uh, their sort of cosmic philosophy of things they've learned from the space people, or rather from the people who've talked to the space people. So it sort of breaks down into into those three 
main sections. And it is one of those books that not only has a, a dedication, but has a little epigram, sort of uh, epi- epigraph quote, rather. Knowledge is cosmic honey, it says. And this is a quotation from the Yada de Shiite, who is one of the beings channeled by Mark Probert at various points in the 50s. And there is also a dedication. Dedication to the sorcerers of the world, known and unknown, to those new age pioneers who have defied tradition and convention, who have faced ridicule, persecution, and loss of jobs to bring to doubting humanity the glorious truths of inhabited outer space. To you, sorcerers of the world, wherever you may be, we lovingly dedicate this book. I mean, if you're buying this book and you consider yourself a sorcerer, that dedication does a really good job of of sort of flattering you very, very quickly off the bat. The book itself begins with um, with a dinner party at the or some sort of party at the um, at the the Reeves's house, and it begins with with action right off the bat. Henry was talking. Here's a man who claims he saw a flying saucer and talked to the pilot. He says the pilot was from Venus. Henry is a fabulous person. He had, as usual, without the slightest warning, burst into our home in Detroit, Michigan. Anything new, exciting, beautiful, imaginative, physical or metaphysical, in this world of out of it, would excite Henry to a fever pitch. It was November 1953, and we were entertaining guests. Although the hour was late, it did not deter dear Henry. How insane can these fellows get, said I, not a little annoyed. How gullible do they think we are, exclaimed one of our guests. No, honestly, cried Henry, this is serious. This man has written a book on it. I sat up all night reading an advanced copy. It's called Flying Saucers of Landed and was written by Desmond Leslie and George Damsky. Here it is. Let's see it, came an excited chorus. Everyone tried to grab it at once. Being an engineer, a college graduate, and employed by a staid and respectable manufacturing firm, I really felt it was up to someone to exhibit, shall we say, a little dignity and common sense. Besides, I had never heard of flying saucers, except through a few obscure references in newspapers, which always ridiculed them, as of course any sane editor would, and should. So I sat back disgusted while the guests and, may I add, my wife Helen, pawed at the book like three-year-olds going after candy. So everybody is, I love, I love the phrase, pawing at the book like three-year-olds, like grabbing candy. And Bryant represents himself as being, being kind of skeptical, um, actually not kind of skeptical, very skeptical about all of this. So a, a consistent theme through the first part of the book is Bryant and, and to a degree Helen becoming less skeptical and more, uh, more credulous really is, is probably the best word. I don't mean it in in a pejorative way, but uh, they, they get a little bit more open to the possibilities of what various contactees are saying. So one thing I've always wondered is, is how do we get from people in Detroit who like flying saucers to Detroit being a place where contactees would come from California and speak to massive, massive crowds. There's like a little missing bit of the narrative that I, I never quite got. Laura Mundo's stories sort of focused on, um, on, on her sort of role in, and, and relationship with Adamski, but the organizational stuff never really came through in her tellings. And so this book kind of represents that, that missing bit of narrative that I've always wondered about. 
There's only one thing to do, said Henry dramatically. Call the man up and get him to Detroit. Where's the phone? That was Henry for you. Direct action, always, at any cost. It was our telephone, but we were all used to Henry. Before I could open my mouth, he had placed a long-distance telephone call to one Mr. George Adamski in Valley Center, California, a man we never previously knew existed until a few hours ago. A tense silence settled over the room as we all waited for the operator to call us back, a hush of excited expectancy. My wife Helen was on an extension telephone with pencil poised to take notes. What a contrast to the previous bedlam. The bell rang. Henry made a beeline for the phone and got there first. The rest all crowded around. Hello, operator? Is this Mr. George Adamski? No? Operator? You say he has no phone? No phone? Well, I thought secretly, that ought to end this crazy business. Good riddance. So if it seems odd that Henry, maybe not odd, if it seems unlikely maybe, or um, a little too easily sort of plausible for Henry to uh, just sort of jump up and say, let's get him here to Detroit. Um, That seemed a little convenient, like maybe they were moving some things around as far as the timeline goes. But um, what's interesting is uh, is really that that Henry Maday had been um, been somebody who was very used to putting on these sorts of these sorts of programs and bringing in speakers from various places to Detroit to talk about various issues. In 1948, I think it was, he was the director for several years afterward also of something called the Detroit Truth Forum. And for example, um, one day they present, or one sort of two-day stand, they presented uh, John Seaman Garns, a noted metaphysician from Minneapolis, speaking on what shall we do with our memories at the downtown YMCA auditorium. Uh, At another point in 1950. Three, I believe it was, or no, 52, rather, um, he brought in a speaker uh, from Grand Rapids to talk about uh, the Fifth Kingdom Man, uh, a leader named um, Leon Knapp of Grand Rapids. So, and it, it sort of tells us who Henry Maday was in 1952. He was the director of the Detroit Truth Forum and Michigan president of the International New Thought Alliance. Uh, so, Henry Maday was somebody who had experience bringing in people to talk about these kinds of metaphysical things. So why did the Detroit Flying Saucer crew sort of go in a contacty friendly direction? It's because people like Henry Maday saw flying saucers and and the contacty messages as, as, as sort of another string in their bow of the type of things they were interested in. They weren't as interested in the nuts and bolts aspects as they were the more metaphysical aspects. So the Detroit Saucerers start bringing in um, George Adamski. They bring him in for a radio interview and a small, smallish lecture at the, uh, the audit- one of the auditoriums at the Detroit Institute of Arts. But these were small lectures at venues holding a few hundred people. And the Detroit Saucerers wanted to have a bigger sort of event, which was kind of a surprise to Bryant Reeve when he learned just how involved he was going to be with this big event. I came home tired from work one evening and was greeted brightly by my wife Helen with the remark, Congratulations, you've just rented the Masonic Temple. I've just rented what? 
the Detroit Masonic Temple, for the public to hear Mr. Adamski. Only $1,200. I signed you up. To say that I was ready to give the saucers back to the Venusians was putting it mildly. By the time the atmosphere had cleared a bit, I tried to realize through a sort of blue haze what had just happened. I had practically purchased an interest in flying saucers and had become sole entrepreneur in a sort of cosmic philanthropic enterprise using the biggest auditorium in the state of Michigan to educate the dear public on spaceships. So adjusting for inflation, um, Bryant Reeve has spent, without knowing it, spent the equivalent in today's money of $13,000 to rent the uh, Detroit Masonic Temple for a George Adamski lecture. The lecture was to take place on Sunday, March 28th, and uh, there were ads in newspapers like the Detroit Free Press, a little little box ad saying, flying saucers, in quotation marks with an exclamation point, learn about them from an eyewitness. George Adamski Masonic Auditorium, Sunday, March 28th, 8.15 p.m., you can buy tickets at any number of outlets, including the Dearborn Bookshop. Uh, the tickets are a buck fifty plus tax. So let's just sort of, um, well, I'm not going to do any math, but you're going to have to sell a lot of tickets at a buck fifty to make to make your your twelve hundred dollars back and pay Adamski and pay for travel and lodging and all of that. So I can see why um, why Bryant. Reeve would have been a little a little concerned about this because Adamski had been there a couple times. He'd, he'd done the rounds of the press. Maybe there wasn't enough demand. But at the same time, he said, you know, people who had been organizing these things, their phones were ringing off the hook with people in the Detroit area who wanted to see uh, to see George Adamski. And it ended up going really well, um, really well, according to um, the uh, the book. 4,000 people showed up, and I was like, okay, 4,000 people showed up to see George Adamski on a Sunday night in Detroit, sure. But um, headline in the Detroit Free Press, the next day, 4,000 see proof of saucers. So, yeah, a crowd of 4,000 people. They've got some photographs of the crowd. Um, there are uh, – there's and it's it's a big crowd. They got a, a close up of a, of a teenage kid taking notes in a notebook as as Adamski speaks. Um, so it, it ends up turning out really really well for them. So now the Reeves and their friends brought other people to Detroit to speak. They brought Desmond Leslie in, uh, Adamski's co-author, and Truman Bethram as well. So um, it's interesting, their, uh, their, their sort of take on Truman Bethram is that he seems too simple and straightforward and honestly working class-ish to be making too much of this up. And, and this is a, a, a sort of thing that is going to be a trend um, in, in this. The, uh, the Reeveses are, you know, they're, they're, at least Bryant is, I don't know the educational or occupational background of Helen, but Bryant is Yale educated, MIT educated. He's a intellectual guy. And so there's a little bit of condescension sometimes toward um toward people like Truman Bethram. It's like, well, he's t- he's too he's too much of a bumpkin to be making any of this up. But when they talk about Truman Bethram and Aura Reigns, they have a really interesting thought about the name Aura Reigns. 
This space being gave her name as Aura Reigns. The authors have felt that this might well be a symbolic name conveying the cosmic concept that the Aura reigns. Deep students of cosmic truth recognize that control of the Aura is one of the cosmic steps in man's regaining his lost control of himself and of matter. I mean, I guess, <laughs> maybe. Um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing, and I always, always love this sort of. Well, we're going to take these words that sound one way and then use them to be sort of other words uh, because that fits what we're trying to do. Um, another th interesting thing about their conversations with with Bethram and, and Bethram's visit to um, to Detroit is that Bethram's wife was with him, and I was actually pretty surprised by that because the impression I'd always gotten from the reading I'd done is that uh, Bethram's wife was, you know, jealous of Aura Reigns and, and everything like that and wasn't down with the saucers. Uh, but she was happy to, uh, to be there from the description in the book. Before we move on to the, the road trip part, there is a, a great sort of sort of episode from uh, one of Adamski's smaller lectures of a few hundred people at the Detroit Institute of Arts that I, I just <laughs> really love for a number of reasons that are um, probably, I, this might not tickle any of you the way it tickled me, but I really enjoyed this little, this little segment. After each lecture, there was a question and answer period. In a lull in one of these periods, a deep booming voice from the last row inquired, Mr. Adamski, what about sex on Venus? It was none other than Singapore Joe Fisher, the world traveler and lecturer and intrepid Britisher who knows more about South Africa and the Orient than our own State Department. A tense hush fell on the audience. One could have heard a pin drop. I did not know whether to head for the door or wait to see what would happen next. Mr. Adamski considered a moment and then with undisturbed equanimity replied, Well, sir, if you went to Venus, I do not believe you would have to learn any new tricks. So I'm not sure what my favorite thing about that is. Um, Adamski's tongue-in-cheek discussion of Venusian sex or the fact that, and I didn't do the, the British accent because then I'd have to do an Adamski accent and I'm not going to do that. But um, the, the, just the line that jumped out at me is, it was none other than Singapore Joe Fisher. And I'm, I'm, I was left wondering, who is Singapore Joe Fisher? Is this a person? And it was. There's not a lot out there about him, um, there's uh, there's some entries in the uh, the Iowa Digital Library from some of their uh, some of their holdings. Um, there's an an ad for a lecture that he did, and it is um, it is outstanding. And he's called Singapore Joe because he uh, also operated um, cinemas in uh, in Singapore and uh, and elsewhere in uh, in that region some of the first cinemas that were in uh, in that area so um, this ad and, and this is this is a, a bit of a digression but um, Singapore Joe Fisher the modern Sinbad I I don't know what this is but he um, he sort of presented four superb motion pictures. This is South Africa, Around the World with Joe Fisher, The Land of the Maharajas, and Canada, the Majestic. And um, Singapore Joe Fisher is described as... Um, <laughs> here's his biography. We're just going to do Singapore Joe Fisher's biography. Truly a citizen of the world, 
Born at the Cape of Good Hope, South Africa, he has already journeyed 14 times around the world. These trips were not made as a mere tourist, but as an adventurer, a philosopher, a lecturer, and a businessman. He found adventure on safaris across the Kalahari Desert, on trips of exploration to the very source of the Yangtze River, on journeys by ox cart, camel, river steamer, and Chinese junk, in shipwrecks off the coast of Africa and on the Yellow River. He pioneered motion picture distribution in India, Burma, Malaysia, the Dutch East Indies, and China, and took a theatrical troupe through those territories, crossing Lower Mongolia to the very heart of China and down the Yangtze River. And to these adventures, Joe Fisher brought a keen understanding of peoples, as well as a lively appreciation of scenic and news value. This innate sense contributed to his tremendous success as one of the leading impresarios and exhibitors in the Orient. This same ability enabled him to create illustrated lectures in the same manner as the important motion pictures producers create great entertainments. They are well-knit, lively descriptions of places far and near, places that his audiences either know or dream of seeing someday. An evening with Joe Fisher is a good substitute for a journey to the very ends of the earth. So that is Singapore Joe Fisher. Um, it sounds like, basically, he was a very early documentary creator at a time when they didn't even have a word for that sort of thing, or travelogues, or, or films, like, uh, films like that. Um, sort of one of the last vestiges of, of that kind of great british empire style like colonialist tourism maybe anyway singapore joe and uh i don't know i might just start throwing it was none other than singapore joe fisher into conversation at random times but back to bryant and helen reeve um i have i have gone down the I have gone down the uh, the rabbit hole of Singapore Joe Fisher. So they meet other sorcerers. As, as I said, Desmond Lens Leslie comes out, Truman Bethram, George Hunt Williamson, who they are very impressed with, um, especially his his expert level archaeological skills, which, as we know from um, from the uh, episode we did on George Hunt Williamson are, are kind of in question as far as his actual credentials go. And then they they head down, they start off on their road trip and they head down to Mexico where they will connect with the Mexican UFO community or the Mexican flying saucer community. And it's a different sort of thing than what they were used to seeing in the United States. The strange, unwritten censorship or apathy that we felt in the States was not nearly as much in evidence south of the border. In fact, in South America, during November of 1954, the Brazilian Air Force held a veritable saucer convention with discussions, photographs, and reports well publicized. May we say that the people we met were wonderful. There was a large Mexican contingent which included such people as doctors, lawyers, newspapermen, engineers, scientists, artists, authors, and military men. Yes, even a general. We feel we must mention our good friend Colonel B of the Mexican Air Force, who is the Mexican authority on flying saucer phenomenon. Keen, witty, agreeable, ever alert for new information, he was a most welcome visitor. We were able to trade saucer information with him on numerous occasions, for we were still in direct correspondence with many leading saucerers. Now, they are quick to point out that not everybody they met in Mexico was 
a flying saucer fanatic. Um, they did meet their share of skeptics and people who mocked the subject. But there is overall a sense that Mexican society, at least the people they hung out with in Mexico City, were really open to the idea and really interested. Um, I'm very curious about Colonel B., who always showed up at their meetings and when he wasn't there would send one of his um, one of his subordinates to uh, participate in the meetings. That sounds to me less like the Mexican military is interested in UFOs and more like the Mexican military may want to keep an eye on these Americans who show up and just start having massive meetings at their apartment um, with Mexican citizens about flying saucers. It just seems kind of um, kind of odd. So while they're in Mexico City in late 1954, there was a press conference at the White House and President Eisenhower made some statements that about flying saucers that he talked to some Air Force people and it's nothing to worry about. Well, in response to this, the Reeveses sent off a telegram to President Eisenhower um, after assuring us, the readers, that they do believe President Eisenhower is a, a great man and probably the greatest American president since George Washington, which um, I, I don't quite agree with, but um, I, Lincoln, right? So um, they send off this this telegram. December 16th, 1954, to Dwight D. Eisenhower, President of the United States, Washington, D.C. Your reference to flying saucers at news conference December 15 has astounded us. After months of private investigation, we are convinced that spaceships from outer space are making a detailed survey of the Earth at the present time. We believe you are being given a distorted and prejudiced picture of what may be the greatest cosmic phenomenon of this age. Other countries are beginning to recognize this and its importance. We believe the truth belongs to the people, and that it can only come forth by openly and publicly appointing a receptive and unbiased scientific commission to investigate and report. Signed, Bryant and Helen Reeve, U.S. Citizens. The more things change, huh? Um, all we need is is for the government to appoint the right people to release the information to the public and everything will be great. Um, and of course, the military is not telling everybody everything it knows and is disinforming other parts of the government. Um, we've heard this before, haven't we? In any case, um, uh, Bryant and Helen make it clear that they did not receive a reply from uh, from the White House, not even, they said, from the White House janitor. So they're in Mexico. They're talking about flying saucers. They are increasingly on board with the various messages that the contactees are sending. Um, throughout the book, uh, I, I did not I do not get the impression that they um, they have any serious qualms about any story they hear. Even Bryant, who was skeptical at the beginning, has has come around. So after the break, we're going to look at the contactee they meet in Mexico and his story. And Adamski will then come to Mexico and visit and they will continue uh, continue with their road trip right after this. <laughs> If you like The Saucer Life and you want more, you can support us in exchange for bonus content. Uh, patrons get the episodes 
early. Uh, there's some bonus content every month. Um, there, there's some fun stuff. There's there's good people in the comments. It's it's nice. Uh, I like it and I appreciate the uh, the support. You can check it out at patreon.com slash cheesomedia or via the link in the show notes. You can also check out past episodes at saucerlife.com or your favorite podcast app. Um, we are on um, Twitter. I'm not going to call it X, that's dumb, uh, and Instagram at Saucer Life, uh, on Facebook at the Saucer Life Podcast. You can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com or contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. I just got some interesting stuff from some listeners um, this morning when I went to check the P.O. Box. So I'll be, um, I'll be talking about that uh, in, during, the, uh, during the next episode. So uh, for for right now, let's um, let's get back to uh, let's get back to Mexico City and a strange story from a chauffeur. Actually, before we get to the chauffeur, 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 they have some in a, in a chapter. Helen and Bryant have some constructive ideas for what a, a flying saucer commission would um, would do. And uh, such a commission, as they mentioned in their, their telegram to, to President Eisenhower. And, and they acknowledge that, that you know, government secrecy might be for any number of reasons, um, you know, to prevent technology from falling into the wrong hands or to prevent panic amongst the public. But they think this is, you know, secrecy is a bad idea. And so they've got a Oh, golly. Um, however many numbers the letter H is, point plan, a, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight point plan. I'm, I can't match up numbers and letters. That's weird. Uh, this eight point plan for what a flying saucer commission would do. Um, this commission would get all the secret files that have been hidden from the public and release them in a, quote, orderly and non-frightening manner. Uh, they will, for the first time in history, tell the public the truth about flying saucers, including the truth about any that crashed to Earth, about Hangar 27, Miroc Air Base, and many other things. Um, I've not heard of Hangar 27. Is that... Is, is, I'm down the street from Hangar 18, I suppose. Um, take the restrictions off private and commercial pilots and Air Force personnel and bring forth their saucer sightings and experiences to the public. Oh, I like this one. Encourage all possible channels of communication and contact the space people, not neglecting telepathy, ESP, and other methods. Get the radio hams going full blast and see what they turn up. Get back to audience participation, i.e. public participation, in this great adventure. Report to the people. Speed up our efforts to get to the moon first. Give heed to some of the telepathic and EP, ESP messages for needed knowledge on all factors involved. The conquest of outer space is very important for our future, and the nation that is progressive enough to move out new sources, sorry, to prove out new sources of cosmic information is the nation that will get there first. Um, that's a little more aggressive than I'm used to from uh, from some contactees. You know, we're going to use the Space Brother knowledge to beat the Russians to the... Well, I assume it's the Russians. They're beating, uh, they're beating to the moon. The conquest of outer space is very important for our future. Not knowledge of outer space. Not learning to live with our planetary neighbors. The conquest 
of outer space. I think this is an attitude that Singapore Joe would approve of. And they close this chapter with a a sort of headline, what might happen if the American people are not awakened? Would it not be an historic travesty if someday history had to record the incredible fact that America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, had muffed this great cosmic opportunity to lead the world into the knowledge of and participation in a community of planets and a magnificent interplanetary civilization? Wake up, American citizens. Wake up. It's always nice to get a wake up sheeple moment when you aren't really expecting it. All right, so we've got this story of a chauffeur. Now, this chauffeur, whose name they do not give, um, I do not believe, is um, is a guy who drives cars, drives people around in cars, as chauffeurs do. And his job in August of 1953 was um, basically driving uh, a North American couple um, around Mexico as they visited different towns. They went to uh, uh, Laredo, for example. That was where they were going. They um, started for Laredo at a speed of 60 to 70 miles an hour, and the gearbox goes out. And they're stuck on the side of the road. So the chauffeur is trying to fix the gearbox while the North Americans hi- hijack, not hijack, hitchhike into um, into town to try to find a tow truck or a mechanic who can come help them out. And it's while he is alone on the side of the road fixing this car that the chauffeur has his encounter. All of a sudden, I heard someone coming near me. I could hear footsteps. I looked out from underneath the car and saw two legs in front of me. The legs were covered with trousers of a material like corduroy. I felt fear and got out from under the car. A man with a very pale white face was before me. He was dressed in a one-piece garment of a corduroy-like material which covered even his feet. It was tight at the ankles, cuffs, and neck, but loose everywhere else, giving the appearance of being elastic. Around his waist he wore a thick belt about three inches wide of a bluish color. The strange thing about the belt was it had holes in it, and the holes would light up little by little as if they had electric lights inside. Under his arm was a helmet, like those used by football players, but from one of the earpieces ran fine wires. He had fine features and a penetrating look. No beard. His hair was fine, wavy, gray, and reached his shoulders. He seemed about four feet tall and to weigh about 110 pounds. I was afraid and trembling inside. He asked me twice in correct Spanish what was wrong with my car. I could not answer because I was frightened and was watching him closely. Can't you talk? The stranger asked. Yes, I finally responded. Are you an aviator? Yes, he replied. My machine, which you people call an airplane, is there. And he pointed in the direction of a little mound in front of us. You're not from Mexico? No, he said. I come from a place at much space. This was a literal translation. The word space caught my attention, but it never occurred to me to think of other planets, but only of other countries. I invited him to get in the car as it was almost dark, but his belt began to send out luminous flashes, and I noticed a buzzing sound coming from it. He put on his helmet, raised his arm in a parting gesture, and walked away toward the hill, leaving me alone. At about 200 meters, I could see his belt lights twinkling like fireflies. I stood next to the car watching until he was out of sight. So our chauffeur gets in the car, stays in the car. It's getting dark. He's, he's wondering 
where um, where the people are who went to get the mechanic, and then he hears a knock on the car window. I saw two people standing near the car and thought they were the owners of the automobile. My surprise was great when I saw it was my aviator friend, but this time he was accompanied by another taller person, but with the same kind of uniform. Without thinking, I asked them to come into the car, which they did. The small one sat next to me, then the taller one. I turned my back toward the door so as to observe them every time a car passed by. Then it occurred to me to turn on the dome light. I did so and could see the interest with which the taller of them was observing me. His skin was also very white. Are you Europeans? I finally dared ask. The smaller one answered that they came from another place far more distant. Our place is much more inhabited than this. There you do not find much room between people and people. Then he began to talk quite freely, but the taller one limited himself to nodding his head in acknowledgement. The smaller one told me that in his place the towns covered everything. There were no uninhabited areas and the streets were continuous. The people did not walk on the streets because they were metallic, and from them their vehicles took their power. There was a great quantity of vehicles of great diversity, but they never used any kind of fuel. Streets never crossed at the same level. Some had sidewalks made of endless bands running in opposite directions. I asked about vegetables, fruits, and cereals, such as we eat. He answered that all the houses had little patios in the center where there was a garden and a well. They produced all the food they needed. Everything and much more than we on earth eat was produced in these interior patios. He added that they did not have big trees. They did not have tall buildings. In a street block, they had continuous buildings. The chauffeur and his alien friends talk late into the night, and the next day, they get out of the car, and they take him to see something very interesting. We came to the ship, which was roughly 10 meters in diameter and possibly half as high. At a signal, a section of the ship opened and I could see certain things in the interior. My visitors invited me inside. At this, I became utterly panic-stricken and turned and ran back to the highway in the car. A few minutes later, standing beside the car and gazing in the direction of the ship, I saw it rise slowly above the treetops. It was oscillating and was luminous with bluish rays around it. Then it took off and quickly disappeared in the direction of the rising sun. So just so you know, the owners of the car did come back later that day with a mechanic and everything everything got fixed up. So part of the, the long conversation was were some things that were very much George Adamski flavored or inspired. Earth is going through a stage that their planet once went through, etc., etc. So speaking of Adamski, he is coming down to visit the Bryant, I, th- I think I, it was difficult to sort of parse, but I think the Bryants sort of arranged for Adamski to have this meeting with the chauffeur who gets a name um, a little bit uh, a little bit later on. He's identified as a Salvador Villanueva Medina, so he gets uh, he gets a name, but um, they still call him the Mexican Adamski, which is I, I think kind of. Um, denigrating and uh, derivative, um, if not derisive. Exactly. So the idea is Medina is going to, to tell his story to Adamski and, um, and, and then that will be sort of the litmus test of whether or not, um, Salvador is telling the truth. Um, because Adamski will, will be able to tell. 
Before the evening, it was agreed that Mr. George Adamski would be given free reign to question Salvador and to make up his own mind as to the validity of Salvador's experience. We sat back in amazement as the questioning proceeded. Some of the questions asked by Mr. Adamski were key technical questions regarding saucers which we could not have answered correctly ourselves. What did Salvador see when he looked through the door into the ship? What did he notice when the ship took off? Exactly what reason did the spaceman give for being there? These and many other pointed questions were asked. If the questions astounded us, so did the answers. Salvador passed his examination at the hands of a man who, having seen a saucer himself, knew how to ask about certain things which no mere imaginary contact could give the answers to. All present were satisfied with the results. We left the meeting feeling grateful that the events had worked in such a way that we could be present. No, I see no way that could have been faked at all. Um, it's... I, I, I think that um, I, I think that the Reeveses have kind of crossed the line into into full credulity at this point. Um, Salvador, what did you see when you looked inside the um, the spaceship? I, I saw sort of a velour chase lounge. I, amazing, that's what I saw too, right? So there's it's it's charming and and I I love it very much. Now, from what I can see from the internet when I looked, um, it does look like um, Salvador Villanueva Medina did write a book in 1975 called um, Visite el Planeta Venus. Um, That's not, I don't speak Spanish, so that's the best I can do. Um, I do not know if there is an English translation of this. looks like it was published in uh, 1975. so, yeah, he's out there. I'm I'm glad that uh, that we we did get his his name. So at this point, the um, the the Reeveses leave Mexico. They come back to the United States and they continue their road trip on their way to um, Giant Rock to meet George Van Tassel in 1955. They see a UFO. And it's 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 not a contact experience. They just see a UFO, and Van Tassel tells them that um, that they uh, were not the only ones to see it. Other visitors uh, that he had talked to had seen one on that same uh, that same night. Their meeting with Van Tassel is it's it's sweet. Um, they really like him, and they talk about how great his wife is and his family. And I, I love this um, this sort of description of their first meeting. The wall was covered with photographs of saucers and convention pictures. A truck drove up, the door burst open, and soon we found ourselves talking to the male members of the family and shaking hands with the boss himself, George Van Tassel. Bronzed by the sun and desert air, he had the unmistakable appearance of the vigorous outdoor pioneer type. As I gripped his hand, I experienced an unmistakable feeling of liking, of kinship with this man I had never seen before. Despising formality, he was soon calling us Bryant and Helen, and we found ourselves calling him Van. They also discussed the fact that that Van Tassel has to deal with a lot of visitors. Giant Rock is a is a there's an airstrip, so people fly in, they drive in, people know about the the conventions, and it sounds like it's a lot. The activities at the rock were interesting. 
People were coming and going all the time. Many made it a weekend excursion. Some flew private planes, landed on the sandy airstrip, and taxied near to the rock. Some came in trailers and set up desert housekeeping for a few days. Others came in cars or station wagons. They came from everywhere, some from European countries. They all wanted to see and talk to Van. Some of them were mere curiosity seekers. Some obviously came to flatter their ego, to be able to go back home and say, I met George Van Tassel. Some accepted his hospitality and scoffed at him behind his back. But others came with a deep and abiding interest in the subject of saucers and real confidence in Van. We marveled at the structure and qualities of this man and came to see his incredible patience with the most flippant and annoying questions, his unfailing courtesy, his amazing self-restraint, and unselfish helpfulness toward all who came. After leaving Giant Rock, they journey to um, other places in California and meet with members of the Borderlands Science Research Associates, so Mead Lane and Mark Probert and that crowd. And, and we, did, uh, we did an episode on um, the ether ships and, and the BSRA has shown up in various places over the last, my goodness, almost six years of, um, of this show. Um, much like their discussion of... Um, of, of George Van Tassel, the description and the introduction to the borderland science folks and, and Mead Lane is, um, I think, effusive is the best word for it. Here is a representative group of curious people whose desire to investigate is uninhibited. The usual creeds, dogmas, theories, and thought patterns of stiff orthodoxy mean nothing to them. They investigate and study almost every kind of phenomenon in that borderland of science which lies between the physical and the higher manifestations of life. Their meat is the interesting facts, events, and phenomena which orthodox science either cannot or will not investigate. They spend some time with Mead Lane and with Mark Probert. They question some of the voices that Mark Probert um channels i almost said some of the voices in mark probert's head but that that didn't sound the way i wanted it to sound that sounds like kind of mean um it's it's an interesting it's an interesting section of the book it in the interest of time i mean it just goes on and on it's i think they spend more time on the borderland stuff and mark probert than they do any of the other contactees. And it's it's very similar to what we've seen before. In fact, a lot of the things in here, in their actual meetings with the contactees, um, you've got interesting tidbits that I've tried to share, but also um, sort of recounting of their stories. The chapter on Orfe Angelucci is, um, is one that does a lot of just, this was his first experience, this was his second experience, this was his all the way up through fifth experience. And they are, are very complimentary of all of these contactees, but especially of Angelucci. And one thing that they, or one, one way they say something in their Angelucci chapter that uh, they, they didn't really in the other chapters, I don't think they did in the same way, they, they expressed the hope that um, by talking about Angelucci in their book, that they would bring more attention to him. So there's a sense that, yes, Dan Fry and um, George Hunt Williamson and George Adamski and George Van Tassel, yes, incredible people who've had amazing experiences, but Angelucci is sort of flying under the radar. And there's almost like a not quite a drop everything and go by um, an Orfeo Angelucci book, but just just this hope that 
that he can that their work will raise his profile a little bit. So trip to Mexico, conversations with contactees, um, those are two of the things that uh, that the book does. But they also spend a lot of time just talking about flying saucers in a way that is very similar to how everybody else wrote books about flying saucers in the 1950s. Um, and it, it's, I was irritated by it. I was hoping for longer chapters on the contactees themselves and maybe fewer chapters of Bryant and Helen's ideas about the cosmos, which are basically not too different from George Damsky's ideas about the con cosmos, which is shocking, right? But, um, then I sort of have to remind myself, this is 1957. There isn't a lot of this out there. I mean, there's a lot of contactee books and, and Kehoe's writing books, and you've got UFO books. But I think this was the first book that came out. I really think this book is aimed at a non-saucerer audience. This is aimed at a more general audience, maybe an audience that is open to more spiritualist tinged ideas, but it's not aimed at the flying saucer crowd. And I think after a point, contactee books were kind of aimed at, um, maybe not intentionally, but they, they sort of got directed to a, a, a more narrow audience. So when we look at Bryant and Helen Reeves's book, we get little hints sometimes uh, that this is not, this is for the not we, this is for the, the non, the non saucer people. And one example is, is their explanation of why the saucers don't, I don't know, land on the White House lawn or something. One of the persistent complaints is, why don't they land on the White House lawn in Washington, D.C. and declare themselves and their purpose? We think this is a good question. We've discovered a good answer cannot be given in a few words, but that there is a good answer for the thoughtful students of saucers. Much of this answer is set forth in the 20th Century Fox motion picture film The Day the Earth Stood Still, which, although fiction, nevertheless presents the story of a saucer landing right in Washington. It tells about the spaceman and the saucer and his friendly effort to deliver the true message of the space people to our government, the treatment accorded to him by our armed forces, and the dire events that ensued. Many saucer students who know something of the history of this film sincerely believe that it was inspired by the space beings in our midst. Many are also convinced that the space people have declared themselves and their purpose to elected officials in the major governments. Many outer space communication messages we have studied state this to be true. I am not sure I've ever heard the claim that the day the Earth stood still was inspired by the space people themselves, that they were kind of behind this. There's the ongoing chicken and egg debate between movies like The Day the Earth Stood Still and Contactee Stories. But um, at the moment, I'm not recalling any um, anything, uh, anything like this. Like some people believe that the space people inspired the film to be made in a kind of, I don't know, influencing the minds of the screenwriters. Um, I would like to know if director Robert Wise, amazing director Robert Wise, um, was visited by aliens at any time in his life. So 
that's I think that's where I'm going to stop my discussion of uh, of this book. There's a lot more of the same, especially the the, the cosmic cosmic philosophy type things. Um, actually, calling it that as well. Um, so, like I said, Bryant Reeve died in 1968. Um, Helen died in the mid 1980s, and in this interview that. Uh, Brian Cunningham, um, Helen's grandson, has it's um, it's it's interesting because one of the questions that the host asks is whether or not Helen spoke about UFOs to to um, Brian's parents um, and and anything like that. Um, Brian's dad, Helen's son, was an Episcopal uh, an Episcopal pastor, um, and uh, the host says I imagine he had some very definite thoughts. And Brian Cunningham says, quote, it's really interesting to have read or reread this book 20 years after my father's death. I recall him being quite embarrassed at the entire topic of this book. He didn't want to talk about it with my brothers. I think he probably would have preferred that we never read it. At the time, when I was probably in my teens, when we would have talked about this occasionally, I assumed that the reason he was so embarrassed about it or didn't want to talk about it was that he just felt it was kooky, and he didn't like the fact that he came from the stock of people that would buy into this stuff, end quote. So there's, there's, some, there's some embarrassment there. There's also some discussion that uh, Bryant had written a second book, um, called that that the um that the grandson had not read um and I haven't read either it's called the advent of the cosmic viewpoint um and uh it, it has Bryant's name on it and uh and but not not Helen's name on it and um Brian Cunningham the grandson uh in this interview wonders and, and I'll have a link to this um this on on in the show notes um wonders if if Bryant was getting a little more out there and grandma Helen was just like, no, I am not, uh, I am not down with this at all. Do not put my name on it. And indeed the flying saucer pilgrimage book, the, the narration is Bryant. Uh, Helen is his partner and for lack of a better term, a character in the book, but it's not the sort of thing where you've got a chapter by Bryant and a chapter by Helen um, or anything, anything like that. It's, it's very much Bryant is the auth- authorial voice to this book. So what do I think about this book in general? I, I think it is absolutely fascinating. I, I think it is an interesting insight into how somebody in the mid 1950s, somebody who was, was educated and, you know, educated middle-class professional American, how they fall down the UFO rabbit hole and the way that this UFO rabbit hole or this contactee rabbit hole rather was tied up with other spiritual and metaphysical ideas. I think that made the Bryant's, uh, or the Reeves's, um, more, um, more open to these things. Um, I think what we see just in the newspapers of the types of activities and organizations, organizations Henry Maday was into, um, I think that comes, comes through as well. Um, people bring something to this. They are not 
blank slates when they read their first flying saucer story. And I mean, that's true. That's true of any of us, our, our cultural beliefs, our religious beliefs, our experiences, our education, all of these things play a role in how we interpret these stories. So I think it's interesting to see that process take place with Bryant and Helen. Um, I think that's actually more interesting than the interviews with the contactees or the chapters on the contactees themselves. Um, I, I thought that would be the main draw for me, but I think watching them, um, sort of, sort of go down this rabbit hole is, um, is an interesting, is an interesting thing. And I, uh, I recommend it. Um, Check the check out the link in the uh, the show notes with the the interview with um, with Brian Cunningham. Um, it's uh, it, it's pretty interesting. Just a little bit more about his uh, his background. Um, he served as deputy legal advisor um, to Condoleezza Rice when she was national security advisor. Served six years in the Clinton administration as a senior CIA officer and a federal prosecutor. Um, he drafted significant portions of the Homeland Security Act and related legislation. Um, so he is, he is a, this is a high powered guy. Um, and it was his, his grandparents who wrote this book. So I'm so glad I stumbled on, um, on this, this tech, techtopia interview. It is, uh, it is a good one. And again, I'll have that link in the show notes and, Adding on to this, as I um, as I finish up recording this section and, and and start putting this all together, I found an English translation of um, a translation from the Spanish and French edition, not done by a professional translator, um, nor normal English speaking person. Takes reservations for minor, minor or large translation errors when not finding a logic meeting is left only. This must be read with one's own discretion or amusement. It's. I don't know why I read that whole disclaimer. It is the UFO contact of Salvador Villanueva Medina. So the uh, Mexican Adamski um, is his story and um, it's much more extensive and he did much more than we heard about in, um, in flying saucer pilgrimage. So not really a sequel, kind of a sequel to this episode, but next time we'll be looking at, the entire UFO contact experience of Salvador Villanueva Medina and getting outside the boundaries of the, uh, of the United States. Thanks for listening. Send in your questions and comments via the usual social media or email channels. I'll address those next time. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because it is easier than doing a 23,000-mile road trip. Talk to you later.